Before we get started, I just always love, before I ever get the chance to preach, I just want to thank you for being the church family that you are. And um, just in this last year, I've seen so many of you step up to serve in really significant ways, and a lot of them seen, but even more of them unseen. And I want to thank you um, for teaching me more about what it means to be the church than any seminary class could. So I love being a part of this family and this church, um, and I'm excited for our time together this morning. So just seeing Gary Davis smile at you when you're up here, you know, it just, it, it makes it all better. It warms your heart. So if you will, let's pray together for our time this morning. Father, we thank you that you are good, and we thank you that you have uh, gathered us here this morning to hear from you and to worship you. Lord, we thank you for the family that's in this room, Lord. And as a church family, we want to lift up uh, Danny and Penny Russell, who got married last night, and Tommy Doles and Bethany, who get married today. Lord, we pray your blessing and your favor on them, that they would go forth into the world as compelling and joyful images of you and your church. Um, so we support them, and we love them, and we give them to you, God. And we ask for those of us who are here this morning that you would meet us as you already have, that you'd be with us, that you'd give us hearts that are eager and ready to hear from you. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. The famed Dr. Seuss once said, you'll miss the best things if you keep your eyes shut. You'll miss the best things if you keep your eyes shut. In thinking how to illustrate this, my mind was taken to a story from my childhood, a story of pixie dust and Tinkerbell and flying ships, Peter Pan. And in the opening scenes of the animated Peter Pan film, you have Wendy with her two little brothers. And they're busy acting out scenes from Neverland. The little boys are clashing and bashing, pretending to be Captain Hook and Peter Pan. And all the while, while they're fighting, Wendy, their older sister, who's been to Neverland, can direct them and give them all the details they need to know about Neverland. And as they're in the middle of one of these epic fight scenes, George, the dad, walks in and begins to rebuke the children. But especially, he's upset with Wendy because Wendy is filling her little brother's minds with the less practical things of life. And he even goes as far as to say that they shouldn't even share a room anymore because Wendy's just corrupting their minds. But as fate would have it, that night they are visited by a flying ship, captained by none other than Peter Pan himself. And now, I'm not going to take the time to narrate most of the story. I'm trusting you know it. But that night, they are taken to Neverland on a ship, and they, the three children, experience firsthand all the magic that Neverland has to offer. They fly with Peter Pan. They get sprinkled with pixie dust. And spoiler alert, they even help take down Captain Hook. And the night that they return, they're back in their room watching the ship fly back toward the moon, back to Neverland. And in this moment, the parents come into the room, and the kids are like, dad, 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 dad. Remember, like, this is grumpy George from earlier. Dad, dad, dad. Like, look, look out the window. And George looks out and sees the ship, and his mouth drops wide open. And he says, I have the strangest feeling I've seen that ship before. A long time ago, when I was very young. 
You see, George had experienced the magic of Neverland himself. He had flown with Peter Pan. He had taken down Captain Hook. But then he grew up. He got married. He got a job. He had kids. And he became what he swore he'd probably never become. Disenchanted. He forgot the magic that was all around him. If you and I aren't careful in our Christian walk with the Lord, we can become like George. We can be lulled into a sort of spiritual sleepwalk where we miss all that the Lord is doing around us. We, too, can miss all the magic around us. Because while we don't live in a world of flying ships and Tinkerbells and Peter Pan... We do live in a world of cosmic powers, of angels and demons, and we live in a world that is ruled by a resurrected and ascended Lord who has sent his spirit into the world to empower his church and carry out his mission, and he is at work all around us. But, as Dr. Seuss said, you'll miss the best things if you keep your eyes shut. So to help us keep our eyes open this morning, would you meet me in John chapter 11 if you aren't there already? John chapter 11. This summer, I trust most of you know, we've been busy going through the seven I am statements in John's gospel. And the heart of this series, as Matt preached on the first week, is that we want to get Jesus right And we want to get Jesus right by looking at different statements he makes about himself in John's gospel. And I I think this coincides well with the elders' vision for the year of being strong and steadfast together by serving and trusting our sovereign God. Because living out that vision this year begins with the right understanding of who God is for us in Jesus. And so far, we've heard expositions on Jesus as the bread of life. Jesus as the door. And last week, Jesus as the good shepherd, the shepherd after God's own heart. And this morning, we have another I am statement. I am the resurrection and the life. But our I am statement is a little different in that it is embedded in a true narrative. It's in a story. So in order to appreciate the full thrust of this I am statement, we need to tell the story of John 11. And our story this morning begins with a man named Lazarus. Lazarus lives in the village of Bethany, about two miles away from Jerusalem. Lazarus has fallen sick, and so his two sisters, Mary and Martha, send word to Jesus to have him come heal Lazarus. Mary and Martha have been firsthand recipients of the Lord's mercy and power in their own life. And they send to Jesus and say, He whom you love is ill. What they don't say is, Lazarus is sick, come heal him. They say, he whom you love is ill. They describe Lazarus as he whom you love. So Lazarus is no distant follower of Jesus. Lazarus is a close friend of Jesus, someone who would have spent a lot of time around him. They say, he whom you love is ill. 
And so we would think, right, our, our Lord, merciful and gracious, we would think that when he hears that, he would have gone right away, right? That as soon that he hears about his friend Lazarus being sick, that he would have like dropped everything he was doing and gone. But the text says that when Jesus heard this, he stayed two days longer where he was. Two days longer. Two days doesn't seem like that long of a time, but when someone is deathly sick, two days is quite literally a matter of life or death. And so two days after Jesus hears the news about Lazarus, I picture it being a morning like any other. The disciples get up and brew their Pike's Place coffee and they have their ESV Bibles open and, you know, Jesus is sitting there receiving their prayers. That didn't actually happen, but two days after Jesus gets this news of Lazarus being sick, he says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep and I go to awaken him. I go to awaken him. So this is where our story picks up. So read with me, beginning in verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. All right, so here's the scene that's going down at Bethany, right? Jewish custom was that on the day that someone passed away, you were to bury them that day, and it was supposed to be followed by six days of mourning. And in this six days of mourning, everyone's coming into town. That crazy aunt and uncle, all family members are coming, friends, neighbors, loved ones, they're all coming to grieve publicly and loudly. This is not the the somber, everyone wears black and is really quiet. This is loud, wailing, grieving that death has come by their neighborhood. This is a busy scene in Bethany. And this is what Jesus is on his way to. So keep reading in verse 20. So when Martha, one of Lazarus' sisters, heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. All right, I love the way Martha is pictured here, right? You know, she's busy, you know, everyone's in town, crazy aunt and uncles and all. And, you know, she's busy with her sister Mary, you know, putting all this on. And then she hears that Jesus is coming, right? So she's like, later, sis, I'm going. Like, Jesus is on his way. I got, like, I got a bone to pick with Jesus. Like, I need to go see him. And it's significant that when she goes to meet Jesus, she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Like, Jesus, where were you? Jesus, you could have stopped this from happening. Where were you? And I don't want to try to sugarcoat this because this really is a sort of indirect rebuke at Jesus' absence. Like, Jesus, you weren't that far away. You were only about two miles away. You could have come sooner and stopped this. And what she says next is telling. She says, I know whatever you ask from God, God will give to you. And while this is an expression of faith and who Jesus is, it it doesn't quite get who Jesus is. Because while she knows Jesus to be her master and her teacher, what she doesn't say is, Jesus at your word. 
you can command my brother to live. What she doesn't get is that she is staring God in flesh in the face. She's thinking of Jesus more as this powerful miracle worker who can work signs and wonders than God himself in the flesh. Whatever you ask from God, I know God will give to you. So let's see how Jesus responds to this. Pick it up in verse 23. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Now, what Jesus says here, your brother will rise again, is true in two senses. Martha only picks up on one of them. For those of us who know this story and were paying attention when the scripture was read this morning, we know what Jesus means here, all right? And if you're in here and you still don't know the end of this story, I'm just going to let you sit in the suspense of the narrative, all right? So, Selah with that. But what Jesus says is true in two senses. The second sense that Martha picks up on is that she thinks Jesus is talking about the resurrection on the last day. And Martha has in mind here prophets like Ezekiel and Daniel who prophesied and told of a day that God would resurrect his people in glory. Their faces would shine like the sun and they would live on the renewed earth in bodies forever. And that's still our hope. That hasn't changed much since the Old Testament. We just got a little more clarity about how all that's going to go down. But that's still our hope too. So she goes, I know, Jesus, I know that day is going to come when my brother will be resurrected. Like, I, I know that day, it's far off, but it's coming. So let's see how Jesus responds to this in verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. All right, ding, ding, ding. Here is our I am statement for the morning. I am the resurrection and the life. And I want us to hear the whole story and the context that this I am statement is in, because what this I am statement is, is a response to Martha's hope about some distant day of resurrection. And what this I am statement does is Jesus puts a face to her hope. Jesus puts a face to her hope. He says, you're hoping in resurrection. You're hoping in this glorious last day, but I am resurrection and the life. You're putting your hope in this day, and that's good because the scriptures tell of that, but that only happens through me. And I don't think we feel the, the awkwardness of this I am statement because we talk a little bit more about um, heaven than resurrection, which is fine. Like we talk about, you know, the hope of heaven. And um, so Bible's over there. I'm over here. All right. Bible's over there. I'm over here. Just, just imagine. Imagine if Jesus had said, I am heaven. Right? That, that'd be weird to hear, right? You know, heaven is where, you know, naked baby angels are and Play-Doh and harps. You know, that's, that's where heaven is. And what Jesus would be saying there is, you're putting your hope in this place. You're putting your hope in where you're going to go when you die, but your hope is in me. Your hope is in me. I am your hope. I am the resurrection and the life. 
So he says two things, I am the resurrection and I am the life. For Jesus to be the resurrection means he is the one who's going to bring about that end time. He's going to be the one to call God's people by name and resurrect them in glory. But experiencing Jesus as the resurrection isn't just an end time hope, it's a present hope. Because the New Testament elsewhere is going to talk about how the Christian life is an experience of Christ's resurrection power, that we've been raised with him, that we can put to death what's earthly in us and live by the power of the Spirit. Secondly, Jesus says, I am the life, meaning that he is the very life he offers. Jesus is the one who has life in himself, and he gives that to you. Life eternal, such that you are always, if you are in Christ, you are always going to be alive to God. There will not be a day or a moment that you are not alive to God. Even our loved ones who have passed away, who knew Jesus, the great saints of old, even right now, they are alive and dancing before Jesus with all their might. There will not be a moment where you cease to be alive to God. Your body might go in the ground, but even to be away from the body is to be present with the Lord. Jesus is the resurrection and the life, meaning Jesus is the only one who gives eternal life embodied and spiritual. And in thinking how to flesh this out for us, I think it looks a lot like what Paul says in Galatians chapter 2 where he says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That whether you feel it or not, whether you're in a dry season or a rich season, when you came to Jesus, your old self was crucified with him, and the life you now live is entirely his. Your life is given to you and will be given to you by Jesus and for Jesus which is good news because it means your old self was crucified with him. It means there's always more of Jesus to get. There's always more life to be found in him. We will never exhaust him. He won't run dry for us. He is the resurrection and the life. And that's good news because there's always a new day with him. There is always a new day with him. There's always more life for you. Jesus hasn't sprinkled everyone else with this, you know, sanctification pixie dust and left you in the dark. He's with you. He sees you. He's working all around you. And there's always more of him to get. Jesus is the only one who gives eternal life embodied and spiritual. Let's keep reading in our story. Verse 28. When she had said this, it's Martha, she went and called her sister, Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out there, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
All right, so now we're getting a close-up on Mary, the second sister of Lazarus. Martha comes back from her conversation with Jesus and goes, Mary, Mary, the teacher's calling you. Jesus is calling you. Go see him. And she goes to see him, and the text says she falls at his feet. And did you catch what's the same about what she said to Jesus as her sister? Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus, where were you? You could have stopped this. If you were here, if you were present with us, my brother would still be alive. But did you catch what's different about what she said as opposed to Martha? It stops there. She doesn't go on to say, I know whatever you ask from God, God will give to you. And in her mind, Jesus has lost his ability to help. Like, Jesus, if you were going to help this situation, if you were going to heal, you would have come by now. Let's see how Jesus responds to this in verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Keep reading. Verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. These verses are some of the most significant insights we get as believers into the emotional life of our Lord. The text says that when Jesus sees Mary and everyone around her weeping over the loss of Lazarus, it says he is deeply moved in his spirit. Another way to bring out what that word means for deeply moved is that Jesus is standing there outraged in his spirit. This word in the original language has connotations of deep anger to it. And it makes sense if you think about it, because Jesus, more than anyone else on the planet, knows that things aren't the way they're supposed to be right now. He is seeing the sting of the last enemy, death, right in front of him. People grieving over the loss of their loved one, over the loss of Lazarus. Jesus sees this, and he is not indifferent to it. Jesus is not indifferent to their sorrow. In fact, it angers him because it's death's power and he knew death should never have this kind of power over them. And Jesus says this and he says, in verse 34, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. In verse 35, one of the most significant verses, but shortest verses in the Bible, Jesus wept. Jesus sees the tomb of his friend, and he weeps. He cries. Jesus sees the tomb of he whom he loves, and he weeps. And just by way of encouragement, don't think Jesus has forgotten what that felt like. 
don't think your Lord has forgotten what that felt like. He is able to sympathize with you and comfort you more profoundly than you know. He has lived a full human life. He has wept our every tear. Jesus has not forgotten the pain of loss. Jesus wept. And so some of the people standing around, they take note. They go, oh, look how he loved him. And some of, them, some of them can't help themselves. They say, well, wait a minute. A few months ago, like, this guy opened the eyes of the blind man. Couldn't he have kept this man from dying? Couldn't he who opened the eyes of the man born blind, couldn't he have stopped this guy who he loved from dying? And then I wanted to keep reading after that paragraph break because if you catch it in verse 38, it says, Jesus deeply moved again came to the tomb. It's the same word that we just read in verse 33. Jesus now is not angry at death all around him. He's angry at unbelief. Jesus is not indifferent to our pain and our hurts and our sorrow, but he is not indifferent to unbelief either. In response to these people standing around, almost mocking him, you open the eyes of the blind man, couldn't you have kept this man from dying? It says Jesus was deeply moved again. He was outraged in his spirit. Because you see, the thing about unbelief is that unbelief blinds us to all that God is eager to do around us. I don't know why, but it seems like our default position is to think that God is somehow indifferent about us or indifferent about our lives, like he's passive, when really he is more eager than you know, and he is at work all around you. But unbelief will blind you to all that God is eager to do around you. And just to come by our neighborhood here, like I was reminded of this and encouraged by this at the last members meeting. When Pat just stood up and said, you know, given everything that this last year has entailed, like, how can it not mean that God is doing something? Given just all, all the experiences of this past year, the ups and the downs, it doesn't mean God is indifferent about us. On the contrary, it means God is doing something profound. And like Lazarus's sisters, we just don't have the eyes to see it yet. God is alive and eager and to move all around us. He's excited for the Northwestern students to come back. He's excited for ethos communities to start up again in the fall. He's excited about the sermons that are going to be preached later this summer and into the fall because he's going to heal. God's going to heal. God's going to save, and he's going to do it among us. He's going to do it through us. God is not indifferent about us. He is alive and eager But unbelief will blind us to all that God is eager to do around us. Let's finish out our story in verse 39. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. 
And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen straps and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So I, I, love, I love the beginning of the portion of the text I just read. Jesus, Jesus, right? The, the Son of God incarnate, the Word made flesh. So that says, take away the stone. And Martha goes, Lord, he stinks already. Right? I know, I know the ESV that we just read makes it sound like a bit like a, like a Shakespeare play. Like, Lord, by this time, there will be an odor. The Greek literally translates to, Lord, he stinks already. Like, I just love that. Lord, he stinks. So, anyway, that's what Martha says. Jesus said, did I not tell you if you believed you would see the glory of God? And then he prays out loud. Catch this. He prays out loud in front of everyone. Says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I thank you that you have heard me. And just to be clear, thank you that you've heard me about Lazarus. Jesus has been praying for Lazarus. He's been praying for this moment. He's been praying for the people around him to believe in him. Everyone's thinking Jesus is indifferent and absent, but really he's been praying, preparing for what he's about to do the whole time. And just a good rule of thumb, whenever Jesus in the gospel starts praying out loud, more than likely it's because he's trying to teach us something. And then he commands. He cries out with a loud voice. He yells, Lazarus, come out. The Son of God commands life in the face of death, and death has no power against it. Like, I, I can just only imagine what it was like to be there in that moment, right? Because being around, I haven't been around a lot of tombs, but people don't typically yell by them, right? Like, just good rule of thumb, manners for life. When you're around a dead person, don't yell, all right? Just, just, that was for free. Just take that with you will. And Jesus yells. He is standing in front of a tomb and yells, Lazarus, come out. And I'm sure there was that moment or two right after he says that where everyone's like, did he, did he just say that? Right? Like, is, like, what? What? Did he just say that? And sure enough, a oh man, this, this was not a Broadway, you know, just gallop out of the tomb. This was like he is wrapped up like a mummy hopping out of the tomb. And I love that, you know, the text doesn't point out anything that people said after this. Because I imagine this is what they were saying. Right? Those people who, you know, a few verses earlier were like, you know, you opened the eyes of the blind man. Couldn't you have stopped this man from dying? Jesus just kind of shut him up. All right? He's like, boom, look at this. I love that there's no response except in verse 45 when it just says, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. 
It's like, yeah, if I saw that too, that would, that would be my response. Jesus' authority to raise the dead for us makes our future sure and our present purposeful. Jesus' authority to raise the dead makes our future sure because he who is the resurrection will call your name. He will call your name and you will know the joy of life with God in a new body on the new earth forever. But Jesus' authority to raise the dead also makes our present purposeful. This story of Lazarus and Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead isn't only for us to remember what Jesus did back then. It's for us to read and go, this is my story. This is what Jesus did for me. I was dead. I had no feeling. I had no desire to know God. I was dead in my sins and my trespasses, and Jesus called my name. Lazarus' story is our story. We're supposed to read this and go, Lord, that's what you did for me. That's what you did for me. Jesus' authority to raise the dead makes our future sure and our present purposeful. But it's easy, far too easy, unfortunately, to become disenchanted with the world we live in. It's easy to forget the magic that's all around us. But the good news about Jesus being the resurrection and the life is that he's inviting you to play. He's inviting you to be a part of what he's doing. But one of the enemy's biggest strategies for your life will be to get you so consumed with yourself and heap shame on you that you take your eyes off of Jesus. I promise you, Satan, over and over again, will want to entangle you and get you so consumed with where you fall short and how you don't measure up and how you can never do anything worthy of God's love, all the while forgetting that Jesus loves you. And he's at work all around you, and he paid for everything on the cross so that you could join him. And that's why this series and this text is so urgent, because it reminds us who Jesus is. It reminds us who Jesus is and takes us up out of ourselves for a bit. It lifts our head and it goes, that's my Lord. And this Lord is resurrected and ascended and even right now at the Father's right hand is drawing breath. And he is praying for you and he's at work all around you and he is not bored with you. Jesus is not bored with your life. But, as Dr. Seuss said, you'll miss the best things if you keep your eyes shut. I pray we're a church that keeps our eyes open. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the resurrection and the life. That death has no power that rivals yours, but you overcome it with a word. 
We thank you, Jesus, that you will call each of our names one day to live with you forever. And I pray right now for us as Evanston Bible Fellowship, Spirit, that you would encourage our hearts, that you'd be the lifter of our heads this morning, and that we could take communion and that we could sing as a people who are free, free because we know Jesus. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you are alive. And Spirit, we ask now that you would come and do what only you can do because you delight in doing it. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.